My history of, uh, of singing in front of people is a very short one, and it's not a good one. Uh, as a 10th grader, as a sophomore, you know, uh, my grandparents, they were into the southern gospel music scene. And uh, my mom's mom and dad, and uh, they kind of got us as 5th, 6th, 7th graders, they got us listening to, back in those days, tapes. Does anybody here even know what a tape is, a cassette tape? All right, very good. There's a, I think there's something on Facebook or something like that where... Uh, it, has a, it has a car that has a cassette tape thing, and somebody said it looks like an iPhone holder. You know, you stick that thing in there. I thought that was pretty humorous. But they got us some tapes, and so we started listening to these quartets, and then we started going to some of the concerts. And we watched those guys up there singing, man, all the glory. You know, every 80-year-old within 30 miles was at that concert, and then there was me and my brothers, you know. And, and uh, so anyways, we, we, we kind of thought, man, that'd be kind of cool. And so... Um, you know, we'd pretend like we were singing as, you know, as kids, you know, when the tapes were playing and, and uh, you know, nobody else was around. Grab like a little pencil to use for your microphone, you know, and, and uh, you know, get all serious with it. So I went to the Philippines as a sophomore in high school and I uh, went with my dad for about three weeks. He was preaching uh, in a couple of meetings over there. And we were with uh, Dr. Ed Lorena, who at that time uh, was pastoring a large church. It has grown since then. But uh, we, we, we got over there. I met the pastor's son. His name is Mel June. And uh, he was about my age. And he, uh, he had a nice voice. And there was a Bible college there. And so he rounded up three other guys. Him, I should say. Him, two other guys, and me. And we were going we to sing in a quartet. And so we were going to sing on a Sunday night there at the uh, Christian Bible Baptist Church in San Pedro Laguna. And there were like a thousand people there on this Sunday night service. And uh, we had practiced all week. We had, uh, you know, we had sung. And, you know, to my ears, it sounded halfway decent. Uh, and so I was kind of ready. I thought, man, this is going to be my debut. This is going to be the launching point for a marvelous career in Southern Gospel music. I got up there, grabbed my microphone. And, of course, everybody wanted to see the American. Nobody could care less about the Filipinos that were singing. They are all watching me. And I got nervous. My hands got all sweaty and I couldn't breathe and I couldn't sing the notes out that we had practiced. And I kid you not, the last note of that song was so awful and it was so horrendous that those Filipinos, which they're the sweetest, kindest, nicest people you'll ever meet, they literally laughed us off of the stage. When that song came to an end, the whole crowd just laughed, you know, and didn't know what else to do. And they laughed. I cried. Recognized that was the end of my dream uh, to be a uh, southern gospel singer, a singer of any sort. You know, pastors that can sing, it's like, it's just not fair, you know. Pastor O'Donnell, I just, you know, it's just, it's just not right. Have you ever heard Kenny Baldwin? I hate that man. Uh, not only can he preach, he's funny, he can play the piano, he can sing, he's, you know, he's, he's got it all. It's just not fair. And, uh, and you know, for, for me, um, I, I, I don't have any musical ability um, I'm not, you know, I'm not very funny. Um, you know what? I, I, I struggle in more ways than you even can even begin to imagine. You see these blue shirts. I got up this morning and, uh, you know, first of all, my alarm went off at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. That is not right. <laughs> amen. Can I get a witness? Can I get someone that would say amen to that? 7 a.m. My alarm clock went off. And uh, that the only reason that that should happen is if you have a tea time. You know, you're going golf, and that's the only reason your alarm should go off at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Went off at 7 a.m., I got up and, and began to get myself ready and uh, grabbed this shirt. You know, this is something. This is bright, 
And, uh, and so I, I'm kind of like, all my kids are still asleep. And so I'm trying to pick out what I'm going to wear with this shirt. I should have done this last night. I should have learned my lesson by now. And so I picked out a pair of pants. And I thought, this will be nice. And, and uh, you know, put them on and came out. And my daughter, she's eight years old. She's in third grade. Her name is Mallory. She was watching some cartoons. And uh, she was the only one awake in the whole house. Everybody else is sleeping. And, and so I thought, well, I should probably ask her. And so I walked up and I said, Mallory, I said, how does daddy look today? Does this match? And she looked at me, eight years old, 7.30 in the morning. And she looked at me and she said, no, dad, that doesn't match. I thought, well, she's only eight. She doesn't know what she's talking about. So I went in to the room. I turned my light on. I said, I said to my wife, I said, Sandra, does this match? And she looked at me. She said, no, it doesn't match. <laughs> Get something else to wear. So uh, it, that's pretty bad when an eight-year-old uh, knows a little bit more than, than a 35-year-old whether something matches or not. That's, uh, that's pretty sad. Uh, but I'm so glad to be here today. What, a, what an exciting rally. What a great group of young people. I'm assuming from Northeast Ohio, most of you uh, would be my guess. If I'm wrong, I, uh, forgive me. I, I apologize. Uh, but um, we, we have, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong Northeast Ohio, and I love Northeast Ohio. It's a great place. Some of you, some of you, you like can't wait to get away. You're just like dreaming of your escape. And I get it. I get it because you're just a teenager now. But there's something about this place. There's like this mysterious magnetism that draws people back. I know people that move away and they're going to live in Arizona where, you know, it's so wonderful and it's paradise. And like two years later, they come back to Northeast Ohio. And, and uh, so it, it's, it's not as bad as you think. There is one, one realm in which it's been pretty bad, and that's in our, that's in our sports teams. Um, but we're getting ready to turn the corner, and we have the city of Akron to thank for that, uh, because you uh, are the home of one particular basketball player. Um, my very first time interacting, well, I shouldn't say interacting, but meet, I shouldn't even say meeting, seeing LeBron James in person, uh, my wife and I, we had gone down in 2000. One or two, we had gone down for a weekend to Amish country. We were coming back, and, uh, and we were heading up, and we, st- we thought we'd stop for lunch, and we did at the Cracker Barrel in Fairlawn. And so we pulled in, we uh, walked in, you know, where you put your name in to get a table and that sort of thing. And while we were standing there, um, right there at the entrance, this huge, tall group of young men came walking past us. And, um, and, and, I, and I, I was standing there, and I said to my wife, I said, Sandra, trying to act, you know, real inconspicuous and kind of like staying like, like Sandra, you know. And, and uh, I'm like, that's LeBron James. At that time, he was a junior in high school. I already knew who he was. How sad is that, you know. And, and uh, he had already appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated, The Chosen One, all this sort of stuff. And my wife goes, who's LeBron James? And I'm like, you know, he's supposed to be this great, great basketball player. He's going to be this. He's going to be that. And she said to me, she said, well, get his autograph. And I thought to myself, I had like a moral conversation going on. I thought, I'm a youth pastor. That will be the day that I walk up to a teenager in high school and ask them, can I have your autograph, sir, please? I said, I'm not getting his autograph. My wife still, I mean, she will not let me forget that. Here's LeBron. He's one of the greatest players in the history of the game. We could have gotten his autograph as a 17-year-old kid, but I just couldn't bring myself um, to do it. So... Anyways, that's, uh, that's, that's an interesting story there. I thought about the uh, video you guys showed. That was, that was brilliant. That was really cool of all the coaches and, and uh, that sort of thing. When I was, um, 
We've got a guy in our church that, that has access to, um, he's, a, he's a media member there in Northeast Ohio, and, and uh, he got me a press pass. I've, I've been to all three of the major sporting events in, in Cleveland. I've been to Browns games, which gives you access into the locker room after the game. Uh, basketball, the night LeBron hit his shot against the Orlando Magic in game two. You guys remember that? One second left. I was there that night. I was in the locker room after the game. Let me let you in on a little secret, all right? I, I know I should be preaching by now, but there's no clock in here. And so we're just gonna we're just gonna have a good time, all right? Um, let me just tell you something. We as fans, we live and we breathe and we die with what happens on that floor. You know what I'm saying? Like playoff games, it is like it is so serious and so intense that like every shot, you know, I mean, our our stomach is in knots. And are we gonna win this thing? Let me just tell you something. I've been in the locker room after playoff games, after losses and after wins. Those guys could care less. I mean, I shouldn't say they could care less, but it's a job. They go down one nothing a series, or they're down, you know, they're two to one or whatever. It, you know, that to them it's like, well, no problem. We'll go out and get it tomorrow. You know, I'm I'm like wiping the tears away as I walk to my car at the parking garage. These guys are like, hey, give me another piece of pizza, you know, and somebody got a Mountain Dew somewhere, and and it's just a completely different world. Uh, but I was the I was at a game. Recently, a few years ago, the Browns were playing the New England Patriots. And, uh, and Colt McCoy, I think, started the game. Peyton Hillis had a good game. And the Browns destroyed the Patriots, like 34 to 14. And uh, so I was in the locker room after the game, in the New England Patriots locker room. And I'm just kind of standing there. Like, I don't, I'm a pastor, all right? I'm not a media member. I'm not a football player. And everybody can see right through me. I was in the Detroit Tigers locker room a couple of years ago. And Justin Verlander was sitting there. He was eating a plate of chicken after a game. And I'm like standing off to the side. And I'm supposed to be working. Like I'm supposed to have a job to do. I'm just there because it's a cool experience, you know. And, and Verlander's sitting there. He's throwing chicken in his mouth. And he catches my eye. And he's eating the chicken. And he's looking at me. Kind of like with this sketchy eye. Like what's this dude doing here? And I've never seen him before. And, and I thought to myself, I'm going to get thrown out of here. I'm going to get arrested. Just Justin Verlander is, is calling me out. He knows I'm not what I'm supposed to be. And I'm standing in the locker room. The Patriots have just lost. And Bill Belichick walks right next to me. And he's standing there. And no one is within 20 feet of him. Because everybody knows when Bill Belichick loses, you don't want to be around him. I'm the idiot that's standing right next to him. Bill Belichick, is, he looks at me with this look of disdain, like, who is this moron, and how did he get in here? And he starts pacing. He walks back and forth, and he's looking at me, and he walks back and forth. He's running his hands through his hair, and I'm just like, get me out of here. I don't, I don't want this guy to kill me or something, you know? And, uh, and so watching those is, is, uh, brings back some fond memories. Pretty cool, pretty cool experience. Any, any future professional athletes here? I just want to Make sure that, that I'm not missing anybody. All right, very good. Very, uh, numbers of you, that's, that's really cool. Uh, I think your odds are like 0.00356% that you'll ever sniff an NBA floor as an usher in the arena, you know, uh, much less as, a, uh, as an athlete. Second Chronicles chapter 34 is where we are this morning, and I, I'm just really excited to be here today, and I hope you brought your Bible with you. If you did not, if you'll just listen real, real closely as we read the Scripture, perhaps maybe you're sitting next to someone that doesn't have their Bible, maybe you can just kind of uh, share yours with them so that they can kind of follow along with us as well. Second Chronicles chapter number 34 is where we'll be. The Bible says in verse number 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And walked in the ways of David his father. 
and decline neither to the right hand nor to the left. Notice verse number 3. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. I want you to notice very carefully or very specifically verse number three, the beginning phrase there where it says, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. And with the time that I have available to me this morning, I'd like to preach a message that I've entitled, Start Walking. Start walking. Would you bow your heads with me and we'll ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together this morning. Father, we do thank you for this day and thank you for this group of teenagers, these young people that have given of their Saturday. There are probably many things that they could be doing. Perhaps maybe some of them had to, uh, to, uh, to ask off work for this day so that they could come. They would normally be working and earning some money and maybe saving up for college. Uh, perhaps maybe some of them are normally involved in sports leagues, whatever the case may be, and yet they... Uh, they chose this instead. And Father, we pray that you would reward them for this choice, not just with the fun that we're going to have today and the fellowship and meeting new people and making new friends, but most importantly, Lord, we're praying that you would, you would speak to their hearts while, while they're here today. And uh, Lord, that as we, uh, Lord, as we come to the end of our time together, we'll, we'll, we'll have sensed that you have met with us and that you have spoken to our hearts, and most importantly, Lord, that you have changed us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take the messages that will be preached throughout this day and apply them to the hearts of those that will be listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We see here in this passage of Scripture that Josiah was given the throne of the kingdom of Judah as just an eight-year-old boy. Imagine that. Imagine as an eight-year-old being given this great task and this great responsibility. I would assume, my guess would be, that probably for the first number of years that he sat upon the throne, he was more of a figurehead than anything probably didn't do a whole lot legislatively, probably did not make a whole lot of laws and, and that sort of thing. He probably was just there for parades and for special days. There's our, there's our boy king. There's the, the young man who sits on the throne. And he probably had a lot of advisors that were with him and that were around him that helped him to do that which he, which he needed to do. Uh, imagine, though, the responsibility of a kingdom falling upon your shoulders as an eight-year-old. The responsibility of a nation, the responsibility of a group of people that was placed upon your shoulders as just a young boy, as just a child. Again, we would, we would guess that he's probably not making any major decisions at this point, uh, but again, that he's more of a figurehead. But as we fast forward into his reign, we see that by verse number three, he's now eight years in and he's now a 16-year-old young man. How many 16-year-olds do we have in the audience this morning? A number of you, that, that's the age in which you, you fall. You know, 16 is kind of that magical age, you know, the sweet 16 party and all that sort of stuff that goes into being a 16-year-old. And of course, we think about the fact that as 16-year-olds, what's the, what's the one thing that everyone associates with somebody turning 16? Somebody tell me. Driver's license. You can get your driver's license as a 16-year-old. As a I've got to tell you something really pathetic about me. When I was 16, I got my driver's license. Of course, I grew up in a, in a very, very strict Christian home. And uh, by the way, I am extremely grateful and thankful for that. The longer I live, the more thankful I am that I had parents that loved me enough to tell me no and loved me enough to, uh, to be interested in my life and in the things that I was doing and my choices and my friends and that sort of thing. Got my driver's license as a 16-year-old. Finally, man, I got this thing that says that I can drive in a car all by myself. You know, for 
a few weeks prior, I could drive anywhere I wanted, but I had to have a licensed driver sitting with me. And so I came home from school, first day having my driver's license, and I'm just so excited. I'm just so eager. I'm going to go anywhere. I said, Mom, Mom, do you need me to get anything for you from the grocery store? And she said, No, no, I got everything that I need. The rats, I got to find somewhere to go. I got to find something to do. We used to say that when we were kids, rats. I don't know. I don't know. You guys are looking at me like, what is he talking about? But that was a word we used to drop. I'll probably drop a lot of those because I'm, I'm 35 and I'm still living back in that era, I guess. But so I, I thought, okay, mom doesn't need me to go to the grocery store. Hey, hey, dad, you need me to, you need me to run to, you know, some uh, hardware store and get you some tools or so, something like that. And, and uh, my dad said, no, no, son, I'm, I'm good. You know, I don't like to do that kind of stuff anyway. So uh, no, we're, we're all set. And, and I'm like, what am I going to get? What am I going to do? And then it dawned on me. Listen to how pathetic I was. My very first time ever driving my car by, the self, by myself, I drove to the library. That's pretty sad, isn't it? And, uh, but man, it was exciting for me because I was in a car all by myself and, and uh, driving and, and on my own. And so we associate 16 years old uh, as, as with a driver's license. And so as Josiah begins to move into these teenage years where many of you are, the Bible seems to indicate that he takes a, a track that is somewhat unusual, begins to chart a course that's somewhat unusual uh, compared to what his father and his grandfather had done. We won't take time to, to look at it, but if you'll look at chapter number 32, or 33, excuse me, you'll find that his grandfather was a man by the name of Manasseh. And Manasseh reigned 55 years. And Manasseh was a disaster of a king. He was a wicked man. You'll find that his father was a man by the name of Amon. And Amon reigned just two years, which is why uh, Josiah was eight years old when he became the king of this nation. And we find that Amon and we find that Manasseh were both wicked, ungodly men. And yet Josiah comes to the throne and suddenly, as a 16-year-old, he starts to make some good choices and good decisions. He begins to chart his course and he begins to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to take a different route than those that were before him had taken. And the, and the Bible seems to indicate that as a result of the choice that Josiah made, that a, a, a nation begins to revive spiritually. A nation begins to come alive and people begin to, uh, to make good choices and enter into a relationship with God as a result of Josiah's leadership. Now, when you trusted Christ, if you trusted Christ, you're here today and you know the Lord is your Savior, you began a race. Hebrews chapter number 12 is very clear about that. The Bible says, let us therefore run. We're in a race. We are running a race today. At least we ought to be. But you know, it's, it's really hard in this world to consistently run a race that we've been given to run, especially as teenagers. Now, my heart goes out to many of you because I know the struggles that you deal with. I know the burdens that you bear. Many of you maybe perhaps attending public schools and, and very few young people around you have any interest in spiritual things whatsoever. And, and so to run that race consistently is very, very difficult for many of you. We live in this world, there's so many diversions, there's so many temptations, there's so many obstacles that stand in our way and that are placed in our paths. And, and as we look around, we look at Christianity today, I'm afraid that there, not only are many Christians not running, but many of them aren't even walking either. In fact, sadly, as we look around today, many Christians are standing still. Or worse yet, some are going backwards. They're heading back to the life that they used to live. Some of them are not walking backwards. None of them are not even walking backwards. They're, uh, they're, they're running backwards. They're getting back to that former life as fast as they possibly can. 
As we consider this rally today and our time together today, my prayer and my desire is that as you come to the end of this day, that you'll, you'll have started walking spiritually where perhaps maybe some of you are just standing still. Or perhaps maybe some of you have contemplated walking back to that former life. Maybe perhaps some of you, you're here today and you've never even gotten in the race. You've never even accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. My prayer and my desire is that many of you will begin to start walking today as Josiah did. Genesis chapter number 6 and verse number 22, the Bible tells us that Enoch walked with God. At least 300 years, Enoch walked with God every single day. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 5.33, You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God hath commanded you that ye may live. Deuteronomy 10.12 puts it this way, And now Israel, what doth the Lord require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways. 1 Kings 8.61 states, Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord your God, to walk in his statutes. And keep his commandments as it is this day. And then Micah 6, 8 says this. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Clearly, God expects us as Christians that are saved to have and to develop a walk with him. So how's your walk with God today? How you doing? Not interested in your, in your dad's walk or your mom's walk. Because they're, them, they're their own people. You won't answer for them, and, and really they, they won't answer for, for you. They'll answer for the way that they raised you, but they're not going to answer for you. I'm not interested in your pastor's walk. We would all assume that our pastor walks with God. That's an assumption that we should be able to make. I'm not interested in his walk. I'm not interested in your youth pastor's walk. I'm interested in your walk. How is your walk with God today? I'm not interested in your best friend's walk. I find this happens a lot of times in youth gatherings like this, that the Word of God is preached and a teenager will come under conviction. And what he does is instead of responding, he looks to see if somebody else responds. I'm not interested in what somebody else is doing. I'm interested in what I need to do. I'm interested in God helping you to make the decision that you need to make, regardless of whether anyone else in your row, anyone else in your youth group, or get this, anyone else in this whole room responds. I'm interested in whether God speaks to you, whether you'll respond or not. So how's your walk? The indication from 2 Chronicles 34 is that Josiah started walking when he was 16 years old. And I contend that you and I should also be walking with God in this Christian life. I want you to consider a few simple thoughts from this passage regarding the spiritual walk of King Josiah. Number one, I want you to consider that you and I must start somewhere. We must start somewhere. In verse number 3, the Bible says, From the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to walk after God. The Bible doesn't give us all the details surrounding why it was that as a 16-year-old young man, Josiah began to walk with God. We don't know. Perhaps maybe he had someone around him that encouraged him in this, in this walk. Maybe he had a, had, had a friend that had a walk with God himself and came to Josiah and said, Look, Josiah, I know you're the king, and I know I'm just one of your friends, but I, I want to encourage you to develop a walk with Jehovah God. Perhaps maybe he had a friend. Perhaps maybe he had a, he had a mother or maybe a grandmother or, or maybe some other family member that came to him secretly because at this point, a walk with God was not a popular thing. And they came to Josiah and they said, Josiah, listen, listen, I want to beg of you. Your grandfather didn't do very good in this and your dad struggled in this. And we've had a long line here of kings that have not walked with God. But Josiah, I'm begging you for the good of this nation, for the good of this country. I want, to con- I want you to consider to seek after the God of David. 
I want you to consider to seek after the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Maybe he had a family member somewhere. Perhaps maybe he was reading some history books. And he read some of the stories about what God had done for the nation of Israel, the nation that he now governed, the nation that he was now the king over. And as he read these things, he thought to himself, I don't know too much about this God. I've never met this God before. I've not heard too much about him. I've never spent time praying with him, but I'm going to begin to seek after God. Young people, what a marvelous thing it would be for you as a 16-year-old, 15-year-old, 14-year-old to begin now to seek after the God of, of, of this Bible. What a marvelous thing it would be for you to begin to seek after Him now. Listen, listen, before you destroy your life. But before you go out and make some horrible decisions. Before you look back 25 years from now and find your life in shambles and find the fact that you're so messed up you can never do anything that will account for anything significant for God because you've blown it already. What a marvelous thing it would be that at a youth rally you'd come to an altar and you'd make a decision for Christ that will keep you on a path that is straight and narrow. That will keep you from destroying your life and making some horrible decisions. A, a decision, a, a path that someday your children will come to you and thank you for taking. Someday your future spouse will come to you and they'll say, I, want, I just want to thank you for choosing to serve God. Someday your pastor will come. Someday your parents will look back and they'll say, we're so proud of you because you've made these decisions. We find so many young people going in opposite direction, but we find that we must start somewhere. You know, some of you have heard the stories that your parents have told you, but as of right now, you don't know the God that your parents know. Some of you, you've come into a church that's maybe similar to this or maybe this church and, and you're still in that kind of development stage. I mean, God's doing great things and there's another building that you're looking to move into and you're excited about that and you're watching God grow the church. But some of you, maybe you've come into a more established church and, uh, and it's been around for a while and, and uh, there's already lots of people there. Maybe there's not a lot of people there, but you hear some of the stories of things that happened back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s when people just came to the altar and flooded it and got saved and they were just baptized and they got into the church and, and you've heard some of those stories. You've heard about what God used to do, but as you look at your life, you think to yourself, boy, God's not done a whole lot with me. I've not seen God do some of the same things that these folks keep talking about. You, 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 you know the, the God, you've heard about Him, but you don't know Him personally. Why don't you start today? Why don't you start seeking for Him as Josiah did? I, I dare you to pray this simple prayer to God. I dare you to just ask, say, Lord, show yourself to me. Or prove yourself to me. I want to know you personally. Will you take that challenge? Will you stop relying on your parents' testimony, on your pastor's testimony, on things that you read in the Bible? Say, well, I know God did that, but God's never done anything for me. Why don't you ask God to do something for you? Why don't you ask God to show himself strong in your life? Why don't you ask God to do some amazing things? Your walk may not be much right now, but why don't you just start where you are? Simply, humbly, and sincerely get to know God. The Chinese proverb states, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And I'm praying that many of you will be able to look back a thousand miles from here figuratively. Maybe 40, 50 years from this point and you'll be able to look back to Saturday, September the 6th. And you'll be able to say that as a result of my time in that youth rally, I began walking with God. God got a hold of my heart and I didn't really know what I was doing and I didn't really know how to do it but I knew that God was speaking to my heart and I knew that God wanted this for my life and I came to a simple altar and I got down on my face before God and I said, God, as simply as I know how, I'm going to start this walk with you. 
I don't know where it's going to lead. I don't know where it's going to take me. I don't know how hard it's going to be or how challenging it's going to be. But I know that this is what you want for my life. And many of you look back on this day and thank God for the day that you began to start walking. You must start somewhere. But let me say secondly, one positive step leads to another. We find in verses 3 through 7, we find there in verse number 3 that in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. That was his starting point. Now fast forward with me. The Bible says that that was in the eighth year of his reign. We are now in the twelfth year of his reign. So he's no longer a 16-year-old young man. He's now 20. But it's key to remember this. He's still walking. He's still walking with God. And notice what the Bible says. The Bible says that in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence and the images that were on high above them. He cut down. And we could go on and read this, but we find that Josiah single-handedly rid the country of their idolatrous practices. For four years now, Josiah's been walking with God, and he, and he doesn't know God very well still. In fact, you'll see in just a moment, he doesn't even have a copy of the Scriptures, doesn't have a copy of the Word of God, but he's heard some things about this God, and so maybe every night before he goes to bed, maybe he gets down on his knees and he says, God, I, I don't know too much about you, but I want, to know, I want to know you more. God, would you show yourself strong to me? God, would you prove yourself to me? And he begins to pray maybe a simple prayer like that. And now we're four years removed. He's four years smarter. He's four years older. He's got a little bit more maturity. He's now a 20-year-old young man. Now he truly is the king. He's not just a figurehead. But when he speaks, things happen. When he says something, people, uh, people, people respond and people follow his leadership. Maybe he's walking through his kingdom one day. He looks up on a hill and maybe he sees some smoke coming out of that hill and he hears some weird chants maybe being chanted or sung. And, and, and he says to maybe one of his servants, what's going on up there? And they say, well, that's, uh, that's uh, some of your people. They're sacrificing to the God of Baal. Really? So we don't, we don't sacrifice to the God of Jehovah? It, was it Baal that led us out of the nation of Egypt? Was it Baal that led us out of bondage? Did Baal part the Red Sea for us? I don't think it was Baal. Let me go up there. Let me find out a little bit more about this. And, and so as the king, he goes up and he begins to inquire. And he begins to find out that this is not just a, a, an isolated incident. But this type of worship of, of false gods is happening all over the nation of Judah. And he's troubled by it. He realizes it's not right and he begins to take some positive steps and he begins to destroy the altars and the, and the groves and he begins to, uh, to get rid of all of these things that, uh, that the people are now worshiping to. And, and he rids the country of these things. And we would say, way to go, Josiah, positive step. And normally at this point in a message, the pastor or the youth director, whoever else is speaking, the evangelist, would start to say to you, hey, young people, listen to me. You've got some things in your life you need to get rid of as well, but I'm not going to go there today. You know why that is? Because I've watched enough young people come to an altar, get down on their face before God and weep and cry because the music in their life isn't right, because the movies in their life aren't right, because the friends in their life aren't right. All of these other things are not right. But young people, listen to me. I contend that Josiah would have never, as a 20-year-old young man, rid the nation of idolatry had he not first, four years prior, began walking. Young people, I want you to listen to me today. I'm not going to ask you to come to this altar and get rid of your music. I'm not going to ask you to come to this altar and get rid of the movies that you're watching or to say goodbye to some of the friends that you're hanging around with or, or, or to determine that you're going to start dressing more modestly. No, no, no. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to come to this altar and just, just start walking. 
Because I promise you this, listen to me, I promise you this, you begin walking with God, you get to know the God of this Bible, and you know what's going to happen? Those things are just going to flee. You get to know God in a personal way. You get to serve God. You get faithful to church. You start loving your pastor and your youth pastor. You start reading this book and you spend time in prayer. You don't have to say to clothing. You'll just instantly begin to realize this isn't right. And Josiah was in that position. I want you to know something, young people. I am so sick and tired of young people coming to an altar and praying and saying, God, forgive me of the sin and God, help me to start doing this now. And they walk back and they go right back to those same sins. And the reason why is because they don't have a walk with God. They don't know God. They don't know Him personally. They don't know what He's like. They never heard Him speak to them. Oh, maybe in a service they get convicted or maybe there's some emotional response that they have. But I'm telling you, young person, you will never be what God wants you to be and you'll never get victory in the areas that you need to get victory until you first start walking. So the challenge is this. And this invitation is given in just a moment. We're not coming to say goodbye to our music. We're not coming to say goodbye to our bad friends. We're not coming to get rid of our bad attitudes. We're coming to ask God to help us to just walk with Him. Because, listen to me, you, you can't get the cart before the horse. And if you do that, if you come to this altar and you say, God, I'm just coming to get rid of my music, and you walk back, and you've not gotten to know this God, and you don't have a determination that tomorrow morning when you get up, before you ever get to your bus route, before you ever get to your Sunday school class, before you ever get to your local church, that you get your nose in this book and you begin to read the scriptures for yourself. Listen, there will be no victory over that music. There will be no victory over those drugs or alcohol. There will be no victory over that immorality. There will be no victory over those movies. There will be no victory over the friends that you have because you don't have a walk with God. I share with our teenagers often that as a junior... In high school, my dad assumed the pastor of the Cleveland Baptist Church. I was a junior. September 3rd, 1995. January the 1st, 1996, he challenged the church in a service that was either a watch night service the night before or maybe a New Year's, New Year's Day service, whatever the case may be. But he challenged the church. He said, listen, church. He said, my desire, my heart, my prayer for you as we get started in this ministry where I'm your pastor is I, I, I desire that everyone in this church gets, to, gets their nose in this book and begins to read the Bible. They had prepared hundreds of, uh, of, of Bible reading schedules and, and that was the challenge and he invited the church family, those that would like to take that challenge to come to the altar. That night as a junior I, I looked at my own life and I thought to myself I've never read the Bible through myself. I don't spend hardly any time reading the Bible period and, and, I, and I took advantage of that challenge. I walked to the front with hundreds of other people. I just prayed a simple prayer, Lord, help me. I'm going to start out on this journey, and I don't know how hard it's going to be, but I'm going to do my best. And I picked a copy of that Bible reading schedule up, and I went home, and I read that first portion of Scripture for the very first time. Next day I got up, and I read it again, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Around March of that year, I had come downstairs, and I was getting ready for school, and, and my, my parents said to me, they said, hey, can you do this, or can you do that? Or maybe they went to correct me in some area. I don't remember exactly what was happening, but I just remember that my response was a whole lot different than it had been in the past. I said something to the effect of, yes, Mom or Dad, yes, I understand, I apologize, I'm sorry, or yes, I'll get this. And, and they were eating breakfast, and I can, only, I can remember my daddy almost like dropped his fork. My mom almost did the same thing, and they kind of looked at each other. And then they looked at me, and they thought, what alien has inhabited our son overnight, you know? And he's never responded this way before. My dad said something like, wow, we're not used to this. What's going on in your life? And I, 
was kind of embarrassed about it because as a junior, I mean, I'd grown up in a pastor's home my whole life. I, here I'm a junior, and I've not, I've not really had a consistent walk with God. And I said, well, Dad, I said, I, you know, you challenged the church back in J- January to read through their Bibles, and I, I took the challenge, and, and I can show you. I've checked off each, each day. I've been reading my Bible. And I said, I, I can only assume that that's what's made the difference. Amen. Remember, my dad looked at me, and he said, that'll do it every time. Never forgotten that, young people. I want you to know something. Some of you, you struggle so much and you get so frustrated and you get so weary and you want to pull your hair out and some of you maybe even want to take even more drastic steps than that. And you know what? It's as simple as getting in this book every single day. It's as simple as getting to know this God. You see, some of us, our relationship consists on what our pastor tells us or what our parents have told us or what our youth pastor tells us. And some of us, we don't have the relationship ourselves. Some of us need to get to know God today. You must start somewhere. Can I say secondly, one positive step leads to another. Can I say thirdly, that God reveals himself to us as we walk. You see, there's some young people here that are looking at next year, perhaps at this point next year, you'll be in college somewhere. That's a fearful thought. Because you recognize that college is an important decision. Chances are you'll perhaps meet the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with in college. Perhaps you'll understand that in college you'll get settled into a certain type of routine and you'll get a philosophy in that college that will be with you perhaps for the rest of your life. Some of you, maybe you're a little concerned because you understand depending on what college you go to, that's the type of career that you'll get into and you just want to make sure that you're making the right decision. Nobody wants to be miserable for the rest of their life. Some of you are worried about it and some of you it keeps you up at night and some of you it, it, it just consumes your thoughts and it makes you apprehensive and it makes you anxious and, and you have all of these thoughts and these concerns. Would you look at me, with me in verse number 8? Now in the 18th year of his reign, Josiah is now 26. He's been walking with God for 10 years. In the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah and Messiah the, the governor of the city and Joah the son of Joah has the recorder to repair the house of the Lord is God. We don't know why but there's a period of time here six years between when he destroys the idols and before he realizes and he looks at the temple and he says man this thing's a mess. Now perhaps maybe for six years they've been raising money to deal with it. This is Solomon's temple. This was the symbol of national pride. This was an amazing complex and facility, but it had fallen into ruin as they had gotten further and further away from God. Once gold hallways are now filled with dust and are rusting and, and are decaying and, and, uh, and, and uh, rooms in which they used to offer sacrifices, nobody's been inside of them for years because they've been out offering sacrifices in the high places and in the groves and in these false to these false gods that they've been worshiping and so josiah goes in and he obliterates the idolatrous practices of this country but for six years for some reason or other the temple is not repaired so the people basically just continue to wander but listen josiah is still walking josiah is still getting to know god but but he's missing something there's a there's a piece that's missing in his life one day josiah maybe walks by the temple he sees it, and maybe the Holy Spirit of God just kind of smites his heart and says, Josiah, you need to do something about that temple. And Josiah makes plans and begins to gather money and finances so that they could repair the house of God. Now look, I don't know that Josiah gave to this personally, but Josiah being the ruler of the nation, we would assume that Josiah probably made some personal sacrifices. And can I stop here for just a moment and say that, God, listen, until God has your heart, you won't make the sacrifices that need to be made. 
Would you look with me real quickly in chapter 35? We turn over there for just a moment and we find that for 70 years or more, the, the children of Israel have not participated in the Passover. You know the Passover that they observed that God led them out of Egypt? And so Josiah says, well, look, we've repaired the temple and, and, and we've gotten to know God better. And so now it's time for us to re-implement the Passover. And look what happens in verse number 7. It says, and Josiah gave to the people of the flock, lambs, and kids all for the Passover offerings for all that were present. Listen, to the number of 30,000 and 3,000 bullocks, these were of the king's substance. In other words, because it had been so long since they had practiced the Passover, nobody had lambs to give. And Josiah said, but this is something that we need to do. And in order for God to be pleased with us, we need to re-implement the, the Passover. We need to reinstitute this. And so Josiah says, we're going to do this. And the people say, but we don't have any lambs. We can't afford it. We, this has not been part of our yearly habit. And so Josiah says, hey, look, look no problem. I'll give you of my own substance. To the tune of 33,000 lambs Josiah gave so that people could have a sacrifice to give. Young people, let me tell you something. You start walking with God, no sacrifice will be too great. You start walking with God and that call of God in your heart to maybe to go to Africa, it won't seem like a big deal anymore. It'll seem like an honor. You mean I can serve you in this capacity? The missionary sent out of our church. Around the same time that I began my walk with God in earnest as a junior in high school, this missionary was heading off to the Ivory Coast. His name was Bob Mack. Perhaps maybe some of you, your church supports him. I've been to visit him on one occasion, and I can tell you living in Africa is not an easy thing. Just this last April, I took a group of teenagers from our church, and actually one from this church as well, and uh, we went to Kenya. We spent time in Kenya. Kenya is a whole lot nicer than the Ivory Coast, but, but Kenya is still nothing like living in the United States of America. I remember the night before this missionary was going to leave for the field, leaving perhaps probably for four years, saying goodbye to his family, saying goodbye to his friends, saying goodbye to the American culture that we all know and love. He stood in the pulpit of the Cleveland Baptist Church. And he said, you know, I've heard lots of people say, oh, oh, Bob, uh, God called you. You have to go to Africa. You have to go to the Ivory Coast. That's what God has for your life. There's, there's no getting out of that. You have to go to Africa. And you know what you know, Brother Mac did? He, said, he, he looked at us and he said, no. He said, I don't have to go to Africa. He said this. He said, I get to go to Africa. Amen. Young people, I want you to know something. You start walking with God. One positive step leads to another. And you're going to find that God will reveal himself to you. And the sacrifices that you need to make won't seem like sacrifices anymore. Because you're so in love with the God that's asking you to make the sacrifices. But would you notice with me a little bit further, we come and they begin to repair the temple. And you know what they find? They find a treasure in this temple that they never dreamed that they would find. Look, would you look with me in verse number 14? And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. For hundreds of years, perhaps, this book of the law, this maybe perhaps original handwriting of Moses on this scroll had been, had been hidden in a corner of the temple. By the way, not hidden by man, but I believe hidden by God. Because I truly believe that God was waiting for a, for a young man who would sit upon the throne, who had a heart for God before he was going to reveal this book. Young people, I want you to know something. Some of you are so, are so stressed out about the future. Now, I'm not going to ask you to come to this altar and say, God, show me what college I need to go to. And God, show me who I need to marry. We all want to know that, don't we? God, show me what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. No, no, no. That's not the decision I'm asking you to make. I'm asking you to come to this altar and say, Dear God, help me just to start walking with you. Because if you start walking with God, and you walk with Him consistently over time, God will reveal more of Himself to you and more of His will to you than you could have ever imagined. 
You won't have to search and seek after things. God will bring things into your life. God will bring things across your path if you'll just give your heart and your life to God. Let me finish with this thought and we'll be done. Let me say number four. Life is too short for us to delay walking. You say, what do you mean by this? Well, go with me to chapter 35. We're almost done. Would you look in chapter 35 and verse number 23? The Bible says, And the archers shot at King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Have me away, for I am sore wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died and was buried in one of the sepulchers of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah lamented for Josiah, and all the singing men and singing women spake of Josiah and their lamentations to this day, and made them an ordinance in Israel. And behold, they are written in the lamentations. We read the end of Josiah's life in chapter 35. You say, what's significant about that? Well, I'll tell you what's significant about that. The Bible says that he became king as an eight-year-old. And the Bible says that he reigned for 31 years. You know what that means? That means that he died not even at 40 years of age. It's a good thing he started walking with God as a 16-year-old. Because he'd only have 23 years left on this, on this earth. It's a good thing he didn't put it off like maybe many of you have been doing. I know, I know how young people think. I was a young pe- person once. I was a young people. No, I was a young person once. I remember sitting in services like this and thinking to myself, Well, I'll serve God someday. Yeah, I'll serve God, but let me go to the college that I want to go to. And let me do the things that I want to do. Let me experience some things and enjoy some things before I, I just jump wholeheartedly into this life. God has for me. Some of you are thinking the same things. What if Josiah would have put it off? Maybe we would have never gotten to a certain step. Maybe they would have never found the book because he got started too late in this process. Young people, I know some of you, you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm going I'm to live for another 60, 70 years. I've got plenty of time to get this thing right and to do what I need to do. But you know, none of us are guaranteed even tomorrow. But we don't know what the future holds. I, I, I've done enough funerals. The very first funeral that I ever did it was for a young girl in our youth department who had, who had just walked away from God and made some poor decisions, and she found herself pregnant out of wedlock. She discovered rec- shortly thereafter that she was expecting twins, and as much oftentimes the case, she delivered those twins early. The one, the one little boy survived, but the other little boy lived for just a couple of days, and then he passed away. During that process, now the mom called me, uh, the, I should say the grandmother of those babies called me, and she said, look, Ashley, was, they, they know that this baby's going to die. His name is Devin, but, but, but they want you to do the funeral. I'd never done a funeral before. I, 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 had, I had no experience burying anybody, much less a, a, an infant that was born premature and lived for two days. You better believe I sought God during moments like that. You better believe I talked to everyone I knew. What do I say? How do I handle this? What, what, what should I do? And I'll never forget the day came and we walked into the, walked to the chapel there in the cemetery. I walked in, I was the first person there. I'm a preacher, I like to be places early. And, and the funeral director was standing there and I said, I said, okay, well, look, this is where it's going to be. Yeah, this is where it's going to be and here's how it's going to work. And, and then I asked the question, I was young and I was naive. I said, excuse me, sir, but where's the, where's the body? Where's the casket? And he said, oh, yeah, it's up there. Don't you see it? And I said, no, I, I don't see it. And he said, it's right up there. It was about the size of a shoebox because this baby was so tiny, so little, didn't need much. My heart broke for the family as they made their way into the, into the service and they sat down in the front and I just preached a simple gospel message. At the end of it, we prayed and, and we made the transition from the service to the, to the, to the cemetery where the bar- baby was going to be buried. I'll never forget the dad stood. He walked up to the front. We didn't need six or eight pallbearers. We just needed one. He picked up that little box and he began to carry it out and everyone followed him and I led them to the, to the plot where that baby was going to be buried. 
We think about life and think, well, I'm going to live a whole lot longer than that. I've already lived a whole lot longer than that. second funeral I ever did was for a man who was probably in his 90s. He had died, and, and, uh, and they obviously needed somebody to have the service. He didn't have really a church home. He had a little bit of Baptist in his background, and so they called our church. I got the opportunity to do it, and I came to the service, and, and, uh, and I did my first service for, funeral service for a baby who lived two days. I did my second one for a man who lived to be 90 years old. But you know what? In light of eternity, there's not a whole lot of difference. Young people, whether you live to be 20 or whether you live to be 80, the Bible says that this life is but for a moment. It's like a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Young people, let me encourage you. Don't put it off. Start walking with God today. Josiah would live 23 years beyond the point when he began his walk with God. And if Josiah were here today, he would tell you as I'm telling you, don't delay. Don't hesitate. Start now. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Do you get the point of the night?